Some of you might remember this book in 20, uh, 2010, uh, author named Laura Hildebrand wrote a book called Unbroken. Uh, and, and it was a very popular book, spent time on the bestseller list for the next two years. It was such a great story that a couple years later in 2014, it was then made into a movie. Um, and then both the movie and the book tell the true story of a guy named Louis Zamberini. Uh, he was a real-life hero, actually was still living while the movie was being produced. And uh, in his 90s, he first came to national attention in 1936 when he ran for the U.S. Olympic team in the uh, Berlin Olympics at the age of 19. And then when the World War II started, he joined up in the Army Air Force. He was stationed in the Pacific as a bombardier on a B-24. Then in May 1943, uh, as he was flying a mission, uh, his bomber experienced mechanical difficulties over the uh, Pacific Ocean. It crashed into the middle Pacific Ocean, and him and two of his other crew members survived the crash. And then against all odds, they, you know, they got out there, they got on a raft, and they were afloat for 47 days without supplies in the middle of the uh, Pacific Ocean. It was longer than anyone had survived, any, longer than anyone thought was possible. And they're dealing with starvation and sharks and, and thirst and enemy aircraft and more. Finally, after 47 days, they finally washed ashore on the Marshall Islands, but they were islands that had, were controlled by the Japanese, and they were quickly uh, captured, thrown into a prisoner war camp, where he then experienced a new level of horror. He was severely beaten and mistreated. Uh, he had one guard particularly who became, you know, he became the prime focus of this person's hatred, a uh, guard that the prisoners called the bird. And for two years, the bird did everything he could to try to break Zampini, to break his spirit to live. And, um, and now the film really advertised that the story was all about the, the strength of the human will, the strength to be able to persevere through anything and be unbroken, that he survived even, you know, the, the shipwreck and, Zamp and the birds attempt to break him and he remained unbroken. And now I will tell you why the film on the whole was very good, told the story well on the whole, it was also incomplete because it did not tell the whole story. You see, the film gave the impression that Sambrini went through all of that and he came out of World War II as, as one that was unbroken and that he just was this unbroken hero. But that's not what happened. That's not the whole story. The book does a much better job telling the whole story. The fact is he came back from the war a very broken man. He was consumed by anger and hatred towards his Japanese guards, especially this one known as the bird. And to deal with his anger and his hatred, he, it kind of grew in him and he began to drink and more and more heavily. He literally lost his business, he lost everything. And, and his heavy drinking and his anger combined in such a way that it was you know, driving his young wife apart from him so that his marriage, his, everything was falling apart. In fact, I could tell you the story, but I'm going to, at this point, let Louis Ambrini in his 90s tell you a little bit in his own words about this period in his life. After World War II ended, Zamperini returned to the United States. Like many prisoners of war, he was still haunted by the effects of war and Mutsuhiro Watanabe. At that time, I was, had a deep hatred for this guy. And when he was beating me in prison camp, I was always strangling him. In my dreams at night, I'm strangling the guy, getting back at him. And uh, that was my desire after the war was to make enough money so I could go back there and look him up and, and you know, really finish the guy off. But I really had a deep hatred that was destroying me. Nightmares every night. So I started to drink because of that and my, uh, well, my whole life just crumbled almost overnight. 
And it was crumbling. Everything was falling apart. It all came to a head one night when he was dreaming about killing the bird, and he woke up, and he was straddled on his wife, strangling her, and she was crying out, trying to get breath. And at that point in time, she said, you know, this is it, I'm out of here, and she began the process of seeking divorce. Everything was being destroyed because he was broken by anger. Now, when we look at a story like Unbroken, the movie particularly, you might look at this and say, boy, what a great story, and it's this hero, and, and we feel like we can't relate because, you know, I don't relate to almost being broken by those kind of events. This idea of being stranded in a raft for 47 days or the horrors of a prisoner war camp and having someone like the bird trying to, you know, torture you and kill you. We don't relate because we don't deal with almost being broken by those kind of events. But when you know the whole story of Louis Sambrini, what you realize is this is a story that we should all very much relate to. Because the fact of the matter is, is he was broken. And the thing that did break him, his anger, is something that we all deal with. See, we all are dealing with the fact that we've been harmed. We all deal with the struggle of anger. And because we've been hurt by others, you know, we've got to say, how do we deal with it? Now, we might say, well, we didn't deal with it at his level. Well, regardless of the nature or the severity of our abuse and the way that we've been hurt, the fact is, is that our anger towards the other people are just as real. And if we don't deal with it, its power to worm deep into our heart and cause incredible destruction is just as real as well. So as we look at this issue, we have to say, how does this fit into this whole question today? How does this fit as a follower of Christ? Should anger be part of our wardrobe? See, if we remember, you know, again, where we've been at thus far is we've been looking at the first part of, of Ephesians, or the middle of Ephesians 4, and we've been seeing in this incredible passage, Paul's been talking about the need to redefine morality, to put on a different kind of lifestyle. A lot of people think of morality in, in terms of don'ts, of rules. You know, you know, you don't steal and you don't, you know, don't cheat, you don't lie and you don't get drunk or whatever it would be. But in our study in the past few weeks, we've seen that God consistently says that our core problem isn't just our actions, it's our character. It isn't what I do, it's who I am. I do sinful things because I have a sinful heart. And if all I do is that I focus on the don'ts, trying not to do these things, then what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, in a sense, deny my own character. I'm trying to keep myself through self-discipline from doing the things that I really want to do. But sooner or later, something is going to you know, come and, and work against my defenses, and the real me is going to slip out. And Paul is teaching that the real issue is not about our self-control. It isn't about us trying to somehow control things more. No, our, our real need is, is a new nature. We need God to change us from the inside out. And when he does, he changes the way we work. So even if you have your Bibles open, go to a few verses before what we're looking at today. And he, we've been seeing that he talks about this as a set of clothes. And, and in, in honor of Louis Sambrini and talking about war, you know, I've got here, this is a World War II era uh, tunic. And, you know, my son is involved in some uh, World War II reenactments, and so we have some uniforms. But if I'm wearing this with him in a World War II reenactment, it's, it fits. But if I wear this around, you're like, what's that, you know, World War II or tuna? It doesn't fit. It's not appropriate. There's a sense that you say, okay, this was the old me. This is, but it doesn't fit this context. Now, look at what Paul says in verse 22. He calls us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, um, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, here's what I've got to realize. Until I take this off, I can't put on righteousness. I can't put on the lifestyle that God is calling me to. Why? Because it's not going to fit over this. 
So what he's calling me to do is to take off the old self, to take off the old way of living, uh, to realize, okay, this doesn't belong anymore. Maybe it's comfortable. Maybe it's who I was. It's maybe, you know, appropriate in the world, but it isn't appropriate as a follower of Christ. And after that, to be renewed, what does it say, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to realize that what I need is God to change who I am, to change me from the inside out, and then to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So I put on what is appropriate, what does fit, what is appropriate for me as a follower of Christ. Now here's the superiority of righteousness. If I put on righteousness, the old self doesn't fit anymore. The things that were natural, the lifestyles, the, the, the things that were natural for me to do, suddenly it doesn't work anymore, it doesn't fit. The sinful you know, decisions, it just isn't appropriate. Now, this is the picture behind everything that Paul is saying here. And what we're seeing now is that he portrays that big picture and then he spends, uh, you know, a chapter basically illustrating that by looking at all these different issues of morality and saying, okay, what's it look like to take off this old and put on a new? What's, what's a wardrobe of a follower of Christ look like in this issue? So last week we saw he began by taking the issue of honesty. The old was take off, you know, um, dishonest speech. So we take off lying to each other but it's not just about that because I can not lie and technically not tell a lie and still be a deceptive person. But instead, I'm to put on the character of truthfulness. And when I put on the careful character of truthfulness, then deception's no longer an issue. You see, because my character has been changed. Now we look at this week and he comes to a new issue. And the issue is that of anger. And what does he say about anger? In verse 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. The first thing it calls us to do is to take off anger-driven behavior. Now, what's important to note right off the bat is he doesn't call us to take off all anger. He does not say, take off anger or thou shall not be angry. In fact, he says, be angry. You're going to get angry. Be angry and do not sin. The, the sin isn't anger in itself. It's a wrong response to anger. What you, and what we need to realize, you know, an important question, is it sinful to be angry? Is it always wrong? Is anger a sin? And, and the answer is no. Becoming angry itself is not a sin. See, there are many people, a lot of confusion on this. A lot of people think that it is. A lot of people think, well, if I ever get angry, well, God doesn't, you know, anger's wrong. It's, and and, and the, there's a problem with that. Because what happens is that if I think that anger is a sin, then what's going to happen is I, I start to get angry and I deny it. Well, I can't get angry. I've got to be nice. I've got to be kind. I've got to be... And so what we do is that we feel that no matter what happens around us, no matter how someone has hurt us, that our natural response should be like this guy. You know, be like Mr. Rod. You know, it's like, boy, you have really stabbed me in the back. And you have really hurt me. And boy, it's really painful. But won't you be my neighbor? You know, that's the idea that we often get, is that, that we should just be always nice. I want to tell you, I think Mr. Rogers even got angry. And in fact, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever sin? No, we know that, right? Did Jesus ever become angry? Yes. Look what the Gospels say about him going into the temple. He goes into the temple and he sees these people, the money changers, ripping people off and, and he became angry and he acted out of that anger. So there is justifiable righteous anger. You see it even something in the character of God. Now, again, here's why this is so important. If we don't understand this, and if we think that our anger is, in itself is wrong, then we begin to get angry, and 
and we repress it. We deny it. We don't, you know, we just we want to push it down because we don't want to be sinful. And, and, uh, and the fact is, is that what happens is when we deny it, the anger is still there. We're just not resolving it. We're burying it. I, I think of it in terms of physical wound. You know, years ago when I was a child, I remember I, I um, was playing with the dog and I ended up like putting my hand under a sofa and ripped my, my, my wrist open on a nail. And for some reason, I felt dumb about it. I felt like ashamed of what I had done. And so I went upstairs and got some solar cane and sprayed it on there and wrapped it up in some gauze. And, and, and I remember my mom even asked me, what's that? Oh, it's nothing. It's a little, you know, because I was ashamed of it. I don't know why. Uh, and, and finally, after a couple days, she said, well, you know, it's still wrapped up. Let me see it. And it, it had bone. You could see bone. It was a really deep cut. It was terrible. Now, what was happening by my covering it? Did it make it better? Did it make it go away? No, it actually was becoming infected. And the fact that I covered it and didn't deal with it actually made it harder to deal with in the long run because, you know, hiding something doesn't make it go away. And in the same way, we need to realize that anger is a wound. We're going to get wounded. We're going to get angry. But if we just then bury it, deny it, hide it, the fact of the matter is, is that we may not see it, but it's becoming infected in a way that it's not only getting worse, but it's going to over time impact our whole body. So we need to realize it starts by saying the truth. You know, if someone has hurt you, if someone has offended you, be honest. Talk about it. Don't justify it. Don't use light words. Oh, I'm just frustrated. No, even talk to them. Deal with it. So if anger itself isn't a sin, then, then what is that righteous anger? Well, really, righteous anger is a res- proper response to, to sin. The fact is God hates sin. And when he sees sin and he sees destruction, he sees those things, he responds in a sense that he hates it. And so if we have the heart of God, when we see sin healthy spiritually, listen, if I'm seeing sin and I'm not moved against it, something's wrong with me. And so there is a healthy response of saying, I hate that. But even as I look at that in a healthy way of responding in anger, you see, I can, if I don't deal with it right, it can become a breeding ground for sin in my heart. In fact, I I don't have this verse up here, but let me read James 1.19. It says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become ang- anger, anger, uh, slow to anger. And now I want you to realize that like Ephesians 4, it doesn't say don't get angry. It says be slow to anger. Why? Because in the next verse it says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here's what happens. When I feel that I have been wronged, there might be a right response of anger. But if I don't control it, what happens is, Because I feel my anger is justified, because what you have done is wrong, therefore I believe my sinful reaction in that anger is justified as well. And so, you know, I I get angry and someone calls me out on it, says, you're angry. Well, let me tell you what they did. They did this and they hurt me in this way. And because they hurt me, I'm not only right in being angry, but I'm right in hurting them back. You see, my response is justified. See, God's word says that while we might have the right to become angry, regardless of what the other person has done, we never have the right to respond with sin. And the problem is unresolved anger. When we have unresolved anger and we let it nurture in our hearts, that leads to sin. Why? Because it leads to bitterness. I hold this anger, I become bitter, and and I think about that. And in time, I then act out of that bitterness and justify my behavior by what other people have done to me. See, and oftentimes we then blame our behavior, 
not on ourselves. It's not my problem. They did that because they did it. You know, the real problem is, is, you know, they caused me to act that way. You know, the person, they cut me off. They caused me to cuss. They did me, you know, they, you know, they caused it. See, we need to realize that even in this, we can even blame God. And this is common, and many people struggle with this. We see that something happened, and God didn't treat us right. God didn't protect us. God didn't provide for us. You know, God, I was following God. God, you did this, and I become angry. You want a great example of this? And the one is in the book of Ruth. You have this woman called Naomi, and, and she had a son, or, or husband and two sons, and, um, and they had gone to this new place, and both of you know, both her sons and her husband die. Later, she returns to her hometown, and when her friends come to greet her, they say, Naomi, it's good to meet you. She says, you know, don't call my Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. She says, I'm changing my name. I'm changing it to Mira, which means bitter. And, and why is it that she changed her name? Look at what she says as her justification. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. You see, God did something to me, and now I'm a bitter person, but it's not my fault. It's God's fault. He did it. And my friends, if we can blame God, we can blame anyone else as well. And the problem is we all do that. And we need to realize that when we react out of anger, it's not the other person that that's causing us to do that. In fact, you know, we need to realize that oftentimes I will, somebody did this and they caused me. Well, no, our action, the actions of others don't cause our sinful actions. They're not the source of that. No one's causing you to act in a sinful way, to say things or do things that are wrong. It's the actions of others that make us angry instead. They don't cause, but they reveal our sinfulness and can nurture a sinful heart. They, they reveal the bitterness, the brokenness in our heart that's already there. And if we don't deal with it all the more, it's going to nurture even greater bitterness. In fact, let me look at what Jesus said about this. In, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus talked about this issue, about what comes from us and where it comes from. You know, so something happens and, and we react out of anger. We act, well, look what he says. Luke 6, the good person uh, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the, uh, his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You see, it's not the events or circumstances, it's what's in our heart because what's in our heart is where our behavior and our words come from. In fact, let me give you a very simple illustration of that. I've got two glasses of water here. Actually, it came from both the same source. One is sweet, fresh water. One has become a little bitter. It's got a load of salt in it. It's got some vinegar. Um, you know, so it's a little bitter water. Now, what happens if I bump this glass? Suddenly, some bitter water spilling out. What if I give a little bump to this glass? Fresh water spilling out. Now, what's happening? What caused the bitter to spill out? What's the source of the bitterness that's spilling on other people? Is it the bump? No, it's what's in the glass. Because the reality is, the fact of the matter is, we're all going to be bumped in life. We're all going to be bumped. We're all going to have people sin against us. We're all going to face circumstances that are hard, that are difficult, that are disappointing. People will do things that, that betray us. We're going to be bumped. And what happens is when the bitterness comes out, it's our tendency to say, look what you made me do. Look what happened. You caused this. You caused the bitterness. But the answer is, is the bitterness didn't come from the person that bumped us. The bitterness came from what spilled out in our heart. It revealed, it didn't cause, it reveals what's in our heart. All the bump does is it, it, it lets down our, our, um, our defenses so the real of us gets out. 
Now, what we will again try to do in the morality is, well, what I need is self-control. I need to not get bumped, or I need to make sure that I can hold it back in. I need a top on top of that. No, what we need is we need to change what's inside our, our heart. So again, I have two glasses up here. They both got bumped. But one of them, when it gets bumped, you know, the bitter water comes out. The other one, when it got bumped, the sweet water came out. And in the same way, we know people that get bumped in the same way we do. They get offended, they get let down, and, and it doesn't mean they don't get angry. It doesn't mean they don't get a hurt. But bitterness and rage doesn't come out. Why? Because they have a clean heart. So what we need to do is we need to admit that our core problem, it isn't the bumpers. Our core problem is something in our heart that we need to let God come and change. The, the, the bitterness, that's just a symptom. The actions is a symptom of this deeper problem. See, ultimately what has happened is we have anger that we've allowed to become a foothold. And we need to see it as a foothold that we need to destroy. See, uh, in fact, you know, one of the things that's common, we kind of understand that when people react out of anger commonly, it's probably because they have someone else that has hurt them along the way. We know that. But look what, what Ephesians says about this. It points it back to this issue, Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I want you to see what it's saying. Don't let the sun go down on your anger because if you do, it's giving an opportunity to the devil. Now, how does that give an opportunity? How does failing to resolve our anger give an opportunity to Satan in our lives? Well, to help understand that, some other, a lot of other translations actually, I think, translate it in a way that I think communicates really what the core issue is. Look at the New Living Translation. It says, and don't sin by, uh, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. You see, if we let the sun go down, if we hold on to anger, it gives a foothold is what it's talking about here. And the idea is, is that if we don't resolve it in some time when we have this foothold, then what is a foothold? It's, 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 a, it's a hook into our heart. It's not only a hook into our heart that's there, that grow, but it's something that then plants and it's planted and grows and it spreads. It's an infection that continues to spread in us. And again, if we you know, don't realize, okay, it's just trying to control our outpost, we're not fixing the real issue. We're not fixing the foothold. See, the issue isn't, you know, have you, do you not explode when somebody gets angry? Are you able to control your behavior so you don't have sinful, you know, justify sinful actions? No, the real issue is if you put on the righteousness of forgiveness. Let's take this issue of a foothold, all right? For those that are, we're talking military here, and for those that in any military history, two weeks ago, we celebrated the 78th anniversary of D-Day. And what is D-Day all about? D-Day was all about getting a foothold in Europe. You see, prior to D-Day, you had, in Great Britain, you had millions of British and, and American uh, troops that were all stationed here in Great Britain, but they couldn't engage in the battle. Why? Because you had all of Europe was controlled by Nazi Germany. And so, you know, you couldn't have people engaged in the battle. They were separated. D-Day was about gaining a foothold. It was about sending all kinds of troops, you know, planes, boats, all, you know, you know thousands, tens of thousands of troops bombarding one beach with the idea of getting a beachhead, of getting several miles in that they can control. Because once you got that beachhead, you could then ship all kinds of troops onto that beachhead. Suddenly, you can get millions of people from here to here, and once you got those millions of people here, then you could spread out that attack so you could go in every direction 
attacking throughout all of Europe. And that's exactly what happened. Once they got the foothold, once they got the beachhead, it, you know, it established the opportunity to fight the battle. Now let's go back to Ephesians 4. When it teaches that anger gives a foothold to the devil, what it's saying is it's this kind of beachhead. When we allow anger into our lives and fail to deal with it, it's giving Satan a foothold into our life so that he can establish you know, a foothold and he can now start bombarding us with temptations and, and building up resentment so that it can then work in our hearts so that it works in multiple different ways. So suddenly anger is a source of all kinds of temptation. See, we, we need to realize this is teaching this principle that repressed and unresolved anger is Satan's most common and effective weapon in developing sentence in our lives. I know this from counseling. You know, I, as I deal with people in counseling, it's amazing. They come in with all kinds of different issues, but how many of them go back to repressed and unresolved anger. And anyone who does any extensive counseling will tell you the same thing. It is the most common source of all the problems that we have. The people may come in with totally unrelated issues. Seemingly, you know, marriage issue, and this is a financial issue, and this person has depression, and it's this person's self-worth, and, and all those things can often go back to this foothold of some kind of unresolved anger. You know, and if, you, if you've got anger issues with other people, it might be rooted, likely rooted in some undealt anger with other people. If, if you have trust issues with other people, it's likely rooted in some undealt with anger issues with other people. I see this all the time, even in relationships and marriage, that people you know, struggle with their spouse, and, and oftentimes it's, you have something with that member of an opposite sex, and it might have been your parents, it might have been a previous relationship, and that person wronged you, and because you haven't dealt with it, you're carrying it over, and it's doing incredible damage to your, to your relationship. There's so many things that go back to that, and even as we talk about Father's Day, for many, that's an issue. Boy, you've got deep wounds from your father. And I'm not downplaying that at all, but I'm saying that these are deep wounds that if you continue to repress, and what they're doing is that it's not getting any better, it's a foothold that Satan is using to do destruction in your life. See, and it's not, some people say, but I'm not angry. Here's what you need to realize. This anger doesn't always express itself in the same way. And some people are angry and they're explosive, and, and, but other people, they get angry, and it's a quiet anger, and it's a quiet resentment. And, and, it, and just because we don't express it in blowing our top temper doesn't mean we don't struggle with it. I'm going to give you an example. I read a classified ad uh, that read several years ago. It, it reads this. Wedding dress for sale, never worn, will trade for a 38 caliber pistol. That woman's got an anger issue, just a guess. You know, I think she's got an anger issue. She's, you know, she's not yelling, but I think there's some anger there. See, God's saying that no matter how we deal with it, if it's there, we've got to deal with it. We've got to take it off and not only take it off and somehow say, how do I take off what was there that for some of us, man, we've been wearing this anger so long, it's comfortable, we don't know how to live without it. I need to take it off, but also I need to now put on the character of, of forgiveness, the Christ-like character of forgiveness. Look at verse 26 again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So we're not only told that we shouldn't let anger become an excuse for sin, but we're also called to seek a resolution for the anger, for forgiveness, to literally try to settle the issue before the day's up. See, it's not just about not taking revenge, you're not blowing up, it's about actually forgiving. And even in this, not being simple, I, I know some people will talk about forgive and forget, and 
No, it's not that. See, I, I think when most people, what they mean by that is usually, well, I'm going to bury and ignore it. I'm just going to, well, I'm just going to put it beside and we're just not think about it. And, no, anger means that you bring out the issue, that you're honest about it, you're honest with the damage that was done, and that you forgive, that you really release, that you let go, that you have to look directly at the sin that was committed against you and forgive the debt that you feel that is owed you. See, what is, it, what is anger? It's saying, you have wronged me, and, and I feel like I have the right to hurt you in some way. You justly deserve, and whether it's out of spite or whether it's distance or whether it's just deep inner hatred or whatever it is, God says forgive and leave the justice to God. Why? Because we've experienced that forgiveness from Christ himself. A few verses later, it calls us to be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Now, how are we to do this? There are two things in this command I want you to see. The first is that it, it's unilateral. That when we look at this, there's a unilateral nature that it says, it, it says forgive. Let, don't let the sun go down on your anger. See, oftentimes, again, I think the thing is, well, I'll forgive as soon as they apologize. I'll forgive as soon as they make restitution. I'll forgive as soon as, you know, they crawl on glass before my knee and let me know that they're crying. You know, whatever it would be, we often feel that. But Paul doesn't say, you know, let, don't let the sun go down after they've done. It just is unconditional. He doesn't say if the other person apologizes. No, it's our responsibility is to forgive, unconditional, unilateral, forgive. We need to, in a sense, say, this is where you wronged me. I feel I have the right to get this back, but I'm going to release it to God. Now, what if the other person doesn't apologize? Forgiveness doesn't mean restoring the relationship. It doesn't mean ignoring that nothing has happened. See, it's not the same as fully reconciling the relationship. Look what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So as possible, as far as it depends on you, I'm going to try to fix the relationship. And my part is I can forgive and I can open up. But you, on the other hand, you have to confess, you have to, for it to really be restored, there's only so much I can do unilaterally. But, I can, but I'm called to do the part that I'm called to do, to forgive, to let go. And not only is that a unilateral call where I'm called to forgive regardless of what the other person does, but there's also a timetable to it. Again, it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let it fester. When you're anger, deal with, angry, deal with it swiftly. Deal with it completely. You know, sometimes we need to back up for a few hours. Sometimes, you know, especially I think in marriage, you're angry with your spouse and you're just, and you're like, man, I know I'm going to say things and you might need to back away for a little while so you don't speak out of your emotion. But that should only be for hours, not days. There might be times you need a little distance, but it's saying, okay, I'm, dis- I'm distant, so I'm just going to speak. I'm not going to use it as an excuse for sin, but you know what? I can't continue to put it off. If possible, I need to deal with it in the day before the sun goes down. If, if not, even in that day, it shouldn't last more than a week. There shouldn't be excuse that we put it off. See why? Because anger is a foothold. It's an on-ramp to other sins in our life. Let's think of it this way. It's like a cancer. I mean, if you, have, you go to a doctor and they say, well, you have this really aggressive cancer, you know, you'd say, well, you know, I don't really want to deal with it. Can we talk to me in six months and then we'll talk? I'll think, think I'm ready to deal with it. No, you want to deal with it now. And if they have the surgery and they say, well, we got most of it, but we just thought some, you know, we thought we'd leave you some for a souvenir, you know. It's like, what, are you kidding? I mean, of course, I want it all out. 
Why? Because I realize that if I leave any in, if I don't deal with it, it's going to grow and it's going to kill me. There's no partial cure. And the same thing what we're told to here is that that's what anger is. It's like this cancer. We deal with it. We can't hold it on. We've got to remove this foothold in our life. We've got to deal with it as soon as possible. So we do it by coming to God and say, God, give me that ability to forgive. And practically, what does it look like? Well, let me just go to another passage, just even looking at kind of this practical application of what it looks like. In Romans chapter 12, uh, we could spend a whole other message on this because it's such a great passage. But let me just briefly show you even what it says. Practically, what's it, how do we live this out? Romans 12, starting in verse 17, it says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What is evil for evil? Anger is, you have wronged me, and I have the right to punish you. Forgiveness is, I release that right. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You might deserve it, but I'm not going to do that. And and that's what I can do. As far as possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceful with all. I can only do my part. I can't make you do your part, but I'm going to do my part. So when we look at that, you say, okay, well, you know, God, you got to change the other person's heart. What is my part? Continues, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to God, the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, here's what it's saying. When I avenge myself, I'm angry, and I reserve the right to have revenge, to, to, to set the record straight. And it's saying, no, don't do that. Why? Because you leave it in God's hands. The question is, who's going to do a better job setting the record straight, bringing justice, you or God? Theologically, we say God. Practically, we say, God's not doing a very good job. You know, God, I'm waiting for you to strike the person dead, and it's not happening. You know, when are you going to work? When are you going to make them miserable? And so I struggle with that, but I've got to say, God, this is in your hands. I forgive, and where there's, it's wrong and there should be justice, that's yours to do. God, I trust you to take care of it. So if I do that, if I say, okay, God, it's yours to do, then what do I do? Continues. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Basically, instead of taking revenge and giving him what they deserve, give them what they don't deserve. Give kindness. Meet their needs. Show show compassion towards the other person. Why? Because it's going to heap burning coals. Coals of conviction. See, ultimately, when we look at this, what are we called to do? We're called to not give the just reward. We're called to give grace and peace. Because what that accomplishes, it accomplishes the goal of of not actually, not us becoming like the person who wronged us, but maybe even leading them to conviction and ultimately to God. Because it wraps up, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we get angry, when we take revenge, we become Somebody wronged me, and and suddenly I become like them. I'm doing the things that they've done to them. They've overcome me with their evil. And God says, that shouldn't be the case. I shouldn't be taking on the clothes that they're wearing that I know are ugly and I hate. No, I need to say, God, place in me the righteousness, forgiveness, and so that instead of becoming like them, I live a life that maybe makes them like me, convicts them and helps them to see and changes their heart as well. Only God could do that. And God does do that. That even in the depth of our anger, even if we have the most broken, you know, if you think, I could never overcome this, I can never overcome that level of of, of anger, I can never forgive that person who's wronged me so deeply. My God, my, my, my friends, I can't, you can't, but our God can. 
And if you come to him and say, God, give me that ability to forgive, he will. And there are many stories of people who tell that story exactly. Stories like Louis Zambini, Zambrini, who was broken by his anger and had justified anger. What was done to him was sinful. It was terrible. It was, his anger was totally justified. And yet he held on to it, and it broke him, was destroying his life, destroying his marriage, destroying every part about his being. And then something happened that broke the power of anger that was breaking him. Rather than me tell you his story, let me have some of his family and friends and himself tell you what happened. He went through some terrible years where he was destroying his marriage, but Louis was saved by his wife's insistence that he go to see a sermon by Billy Graham, who at that time was a very young man, not very well known, but he was speaking in Los Angeles. Louis didn't want to go, but his wife was going to leave him. And he agreed on that basis to go see him speak. And he sat in the back of the audience and he was unhappy and he was sullen, but Graham spoke of things that resonated with Louis, with his experience about how God reaches into people's lives and helps them get through things that seem unsurvivable. I think all the printers had basically made the same prayer, get me home alive to my family, God, and I'll seek you, I'll serve you, and you make promises while you're under a dire situation. But uh, how many of them keep her promise? I didn't. And so my life fell apart. And it was at that moment that he made this realization to, to himself that he thought God had actually helped him through this and he owed God something. And he realized what he needed to do. So I went forward in the meeting and made my confession of faith in Christ and I couldn't believe what happened. While I was still on my knees, my life changed in a matter of moments because I knew I was through getting drunk and I knew that I forgave my guards and I knew it was a miracle because I forgave the bird. <laughs> and that was the first night. The first night in two and a half years, I didn't have a nightmare and I haven't had one since. And Louis realized that God can forgive him for all the rotten things he did in his life, that he ought to be able to forgive those that had done him wrong. So forgiving the guards and the bird uh, was actually salvation for him. It really turned him around in an instant. He decided he needed to test his forgiveness to see if he really had truly achieved it. And he went back to Japan to meet the guards who had, who had abused him so terribly. And he went to Sagama prison where they were all being held for war crimes. He went to every single one and looked him in the eye and told him that he forgave him for mm -hmm. the treatment that he received when he was a prisoner of war. He felt no animosity. He just felt compassion and they couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. It was, it was a wonderful experience. He knew he had truly forgiven them. I think it's incredible that he forgave them. That's a lesson that he taught my father and me. By hating somebody, I'm not hurting them. I'm only hurting myself. You can forgive anybody. Forgiveness is always possible. 
deeply scarred and controlled. Literally, to be able to go back and look at those guards that had tortured him for years and to say, I forgive you. He didn't have that ability. But he surrendered it to God and said, God, give me that ability I don't have, and God did. And his life was radically changed so that, you know, that you, know, that you saw his, two of his kids there, his, grand, his grandson, you know, people that just will, you know, declare about the, how this was a loving, compassionate man that he gave his life to starting youth camps, working with troubled teens and helping them deal with their issues, their anger, their brokenness, and making a difference in thousands of people's lives. Because that's the power of forgiveness. My friends, God calls us to that. We all struggle with this, you know, and I think back even in my own life in this past year, I've, God's re-exposed things that I've had to forgive, I thought I forgave and I'd had to. We're, we're all still dealing with it. And no matter where you're at, you know, you might say, well, it's kind of here and it's, big, it's a big issue and I'm so aware of it or whether it's something, you th- it's not that big. Hey, don't let that cancer grow. Don't, don't let this foothold stay there. No, God calls us to deal with it before the sun goes down. And if we don't, that we're literally giving Satan a foothold into our life. Why would we do that? And it starts by coming, and for some it might be just as he did, coming and saying, God, I need you to forgive me. And starting as he did at that Billy Graham crusade of saying, God, I ask you to forgive me. I need this relationship. If you've never done that, that's the starting point. For many others, you've done that in the past. And God is revealing, kind of scraping off this thing that's buried And he's saying, okay, are you willing to deal with this today? Are you willing to forgive? Are you willing to at least come to me and and give me, you know, come to God saying, come to me and and let me give you the strength to do what you cannot do, to forgive. I hope and pray you are. 